Our panel of break-fix petrolheads are back for another rousing what-should-I-buy debate. Using unique shopping criteria, they are challenged to find our first-time collector the best vehicle that will make their friends go, where do you get that? Or what the hell is wrong with you? At the next Cars and Coffee. What's going on, everybody? This is Brad, a.k.a. The Triple Six. I know this is the first time you're hearing that from me, but that's my nickname around the track and the paddock and, and GTM. With me, as always, is my co-host, Eric. Hey, His nickname, of course, is Monty Quattro. Uh, <laughs> we're coming at you with another episode here. This Today's topic is, what car should I buy? Within the GTM community, the debate of which car should I buy never seems to fully end, whether it be what should I buy as my first track car, my backup car, my new daily, or I just want something different. The fury of this debate within our group will quiet from time to time, but during the slower months, someone will bring it up and the arguments resurrect themselves in full glory. You're right, Brad. And granted, this question can be asked for various types of driving situations. I think we're not really interested in talking about minivans, SUVs, and anything like that. We really want to focus on spirited driving, autocross, and track days. We're going to focus on those guys that aren't looking and shopping for their second and third track car. They're really looking for their first one. But before we start, here's some top tips from various members to keep in mind when you're shopping for a new quote-unquote sports car. So member Matt Y., comes at us and he says never drive your heroes and this one from our illustrious leader brad look around the paddock and start with what you see again another gem from matt y if you're not okay with me putting a boot in the door of your car then you've selected the wrong car and pearls of wisdom from sam build versus buy buy so rather than rehash everything we've talked about on slack for the 11 millionth time what we've done is put together a list of kind of our top 10 cars through the plethora of options that exist out there. We're going to go through them and talk about why they're great starter track cars in no particular order, but we're going to go ahead and kick off with a fan favorite, the BMW or the E36 3 Series and the M3s. So Brad, what do you think about those? Uh, you see a lot of them around the paddock. I mean, they're, they're very popular. I think they're, they're very cheap to get into. They perform pretty well compared to other cars that are out there, I guess, for the money. I'd say they're not rare, but their setup is something that's hard to find these days. It's hard to find a rear-wheel drive car with a manual uh, transmission, which some people will argue is the ideal you know, setup for a track weapon. I think that's what one of the things that makes them very popular. The aftermarket form is really good. They're, they're a mainstay at the track. I mean, they're very well-balanced cars. They don't drive typically like a rear-wheel drive car like say an american car where they're they've got tons of oversteer or anything like that they're very balanced they they handle really predictably almost like a front-wheel drive would i think they're they're solid cars having never owned one that's easy for me to say uh, since you have actually owned one before let's get your input on it yeah so i mentioned this in the uh the unaired pilot of of our podcast but you know, for me, owning a BMW, it was like owning a boat. You know, the happiest days for me were the day I bought it, and the second happiest day was the day I got rid of it. And everything in between was an absolute nightmare. Now, that being said, I bought the car because I was I was working on something else, and it was down at the time. And I was really curious. A lot of my friends have E36s, and they love them, and they, they speak very highly of those cars. And everything you said is 100% true. But what I came to realize, though, to build a competitive E36, it becomes a very slippery slope. It's 30-year-old German technology, which brings its own issues to light. And parts availability, although very strong, 
you have to replace everything on those motors. They have valve cover issues, you know, uh, water pump problems. You got all these specialty parts that you need to throw in there to make the car reliable on the weekend. Now, that being said, they're not expensive, but it starts to add up very quickly, much like a boat. I recommend them for people that want, like you said, a very well-balanced car, something that's very forgiving. It's not a car that's going to correct your mistakes, but you're going to learn a lot from, from the E36. It's a very forgiving platform. So those are, those are my notes on that car. And the best way to fix your BMW E36 is with Volkswagen parts. 100%. <laughs> yeah, so, th so, that, so there you go. There, a prime example, you bring that up. And there's a backstory behind this. And really, it deals with the way the radiators bleed and all this kind of stuff. And, and the way it was engineered, one of our members, Mike, can go into much more detail than I can on the missteps in engineering there. But yeah, I ended up fixing my cars, let's say call it air pocket problems in the water cooling system, which those cars are notorious for by using VW parts, right? Because I didn't want to spend a jillion dollars on European, you know, S52 parts and all this kind of stuff. Because as we've always said, there's a M tax, especially with the M versions of the BMWs where just because it's got that badge, it costs 10 times the amount for, for whatever reason. Again, it's a detractor, but you have to put it relative to a lot of other cars where let's say the Porsche tax is much higher or the AMG tax is much higher than the M taxes, depending on, you know, the year. So going down the line, um, there's the E36, the one we've just been uh, waxing idiotic about for the, the last five minutes. Now let's talk about its big brother, the newer, more powerful, some say more balanced uh, E46. Personally, this is my favorite of the BMWs. Mm -hmm. uh, I just, I think for looks wise, they just look amazing. Uh, and I think they're, they're great cars uh, just to, to have on the street as well as the track. Obviously they're, they're newer, uh, newer technology. So it may be a little bit better car creature comforts inside. Not that you need that for a track car, but some people that want to do a dual purpose, they may care about things like that. They're bigger, they're more powerful than the, the E36. Um, they've got fantastic power and handling and the last of the purpose-built M cars, the S54, I think is what it was, the That's motor that came in those, uh, 340 some horsepower, straight six, it, just great cars. Uh, and they've got huge aftermarket support as well. Mm -hmm. They've got some known failure points and known issues, especially with the M. Other than that, I think they're, they're great cars. Another problem with them though, is they're very hard to come by, especially the, the M3s now. They're because they're so desirable, especially a manual is very difficult to come by. Now you can get the SMG transmission, um, which is, it's very easy to actually, well, I don't wanna say easy. If you're, if you're a DIYer, it may be easy for you, but parts aren't that expensive to do the swap because you don't need to change the trans. You just need to change some of the components with it. Um, but what are your thoughts on the E46? I don't want to focus too much on the M cars, although most of my experiences with the E46 M cars, the base E46s, and I want to I want to put this in a year perspective, if I remember correctly, and I'm not a BMW expert, the E46 chassis ran from 2000 to 2005, 2006-ish timeframe versus the E36, which ran from 1993 to 1999. So it's a much newer car, much more modern technology. It's larger than the E36. It's heavier, but that's okay because it makes a lot more power, longer 
rev range, all that kind of stuff. I've been very fortunate to drive all sorts of different E46s. Bargain basement, a 330i is the way to go if you don't want to pay the M tax. Again, we mentioned that earlier on the E46 platform. And as you're saying, the E46 M3s are getting harder and harder to find. They are more expensive to operate, but they do reward you when you've done the proper maintenance and the proper modifications to those cars. Big failure point is the rear subframe. They tend to crack, especially under load. A lot of guys have either already welded them. Even on the street, this is an issue. They've taken care of it. So they, there's going to be some buyer's guides you're going to have to look into to make sure that your E46 was properly maintained. And a lot of the known issues were already taken care of. This is where you get into that debate of build versus buy. And on the BMW side, if you're looking to graduate very quickly into something more competitive like time trials or road racing or club racing, you know, an organization like SCCA, the Sports Car Club of America, or NASA, which is the National Autosport Association, then buy something already done. And all the big dollar items have already been taken care of as well as the fact that the price point is really good because a race car is worth more in pieces than it is whole. And if you're looking to pick up somebody's last year car or a car that you know they're done with because they're graduating out of you know, spec E46 or onto another class, it's a good time to pick up a car at very good value. Next up on the list is one of our personal favorites, the Mark IV Volkswagens. The Mark IV Volkswagens spanned from 1998, if you start with the Beetle, all the way through 2006. The more common is 99 to 05. It's very difficult to find 98s and 06s, but that's going to be your Beetles, your Golfs, your Jettas, your Mark I TTs. They're all built on the same chassis fourth generation Volkswagen chassis. It's a very unique chassis. It was a ground up redo, whereas the Marks 1, 2, and 3 were all evolutions of the Mark 1 chassis. And then oddly enough, after the Mark 4, the 5, 6, 7, and, and 7.5 and, and so on are also all the same chassis. So the Mark 4 stands alone. A lot of people don't like it because what VW tried to do was they got rid of the harshness of the early cars, made them a little bit more cruiser-ish, you know, Autobahn cruiser cars, which meant adding a lot of bushings, adding a lot of other things to smooth those cars out. But you have four engine packages to choose from, but two that are only really important at the track. That's the 1.8 turbo 20 valve and the 2.8 liter VR6. I recommend the 24 valve VR6 for a million different reasons over the 12 valve. But realistically, if you're gonna get in on a Mark IV, a couple recommendations, the Jetta, because it's so cheap and it actually handles the best of the bunch because it maintains the C shape between the A and C pillars, which is actually what that chassis needs in order to handle correctly, because it was designed to be used for the Beetle, which also has that arch shape to it. And the suspension and the, the way the chassis flexes, it doesn't really work great on the Golf. That one personally handles the worst of the bunch, even though we, we all have them. The Jetta's better balanced, but the price point is really low on those cars versus a GTI where you'll pay three or four times as much for the same car that you can get in a four-door sedan, which by the way, only weighs about 50 pounds difference between the GTI and the Jetta. So there's a lot to consider there. You can get into a 1E Turbo Jetta. You don't need to get a GLI or anything special, 20th anniversary editions and all this kind of stuff. Go buy yourself a thousand dollar Jetta with 150K on it and run it till it explodes. But do the timing belt first. And we know somebody that's done just that, bought a car on Friday and raced it on Saturday. <laughs> 100%. So Brad, what are some of the drawbacks being a, a Mark IV owner yourself for that platform? Well, let's see. I've owned, I'm probably four Mark IVs in at this point. 
And obviously for a track car, people say front wheel drive, not the way to go. I'm of the opinion that front wheel drive is fun wheel drive. But a lot of the, the gripes about front wheel drive is it understeers like a pig. You can't get them to turn. You can't get them to rotate. Take it from me as someone who constantly is, you know, oversteering and drifting out of Oak Tree at, at VIR and even uh, facing the wrong direction at pit race in turn one. Those <laughs> cars can definitely be made to oversteer and rotate. There, there's no problems about that at all. So that's some of the gripes about them. Parts, they're old cars now. Some of the distributors like ECS, there are still parts available, but sometimes they're hard to get expeditiously. I don't know. I, I don't, I like them. I, there's how many of them in the group? 10 in the group or something like that? Yeah, there's, there's eight dedicated Mark IV track cars right now. So, I mean, that's not our entire population, but there's a, of course you know, not. Yeah. we're our own little tribe of, you know, the Mark IV mafia, which we'll probably have everybody together on a future episode to talk about sing kumbaya, but how much we love those cars, but there are some drawbacks to them and front wheel drive isn't for everybody, but I will say this. Front wheel drive is very forgiving on track, but to go fast in a front wheel drive takes a special type of driving style. It is not for the faint of heart. You can have a lot of fun in a rear wheel drive, but you can you can do some really, really interesting things that a rear wheel drive can't in a, in a well-prepared front wheel drive car. Before we move on though, there's one other failure point of the Mark IV Volkswagen that we would be remiss if we, we did not tell our listeners about. Oh? How many axles have I had to replace yeah. since owning my car? How yeah. many axles so, have you had to replace? Yeah, so that is that is a huge drawback. And that is a drawback of almost every front wheel drive on track is the axles are the weak point. Now, if you go to our website and search Mark IV Build, we have a build sheet going from stage one to stage four to kind of help guide you through building those cars, learning from all of our mistakes and wasted money. But axles are a big one. I cannot recommend enough the axles provided through USRT, which is a usually sideways rally team out of New Jersey. They're built in part and licensed through the drive shaft shop in North Carolina. And they're 500 horsepower drag axles. And once you upgrade to something like that, you don't have any issues with those cars anymore. Reason being, most of the cheap Chinese axles that you get from, you know, Advance Auto, they're designed to get you down the road at 65 miles an hour, 55, whatever your highway speed limit is. But when you're racing, there's a lot of pressure on the suspension, especially front wheel drive, because it's doing the turning, the accelerating and the braking all on those front two wheels. Another failure point because of that is the wheel bearings, you know, stuff like that. And so once the CVs start to go, the wheel bearings start to go with them, it becomes a whole kind of cascading effect there. The reason those drag axles are so good, just, you know, we can talk about this in another episode in more detail inner CVs are from a Porsche and the outer CVs are from an Audi Quattro. So they're really overbuilt for that car, which is fantastic. And they can be rebuilt as we've, we've determined we tore a boot in my car and I called drive shaft shop and in what was it a week they had a replacement boot out to me. So you can call them and get, you can buy the components to build the, the axle uh, separately if you damage something. Yeah, exactly. So what's next up on our list there, Brad? Uh, we've got the Mini, which when I was looking for track cars, it was one of the ones on my short list. Well, I say short list, it was actually probably 100 cars deep because anything that you know, had a motor and a steering wheel and was not a truck was on my list at one point. And the Mini Coopers, they're, they're like the GTIs. Some people think that they're, they're better. They're, they're better handling cars. The motors are, even though they're a little smaller, they're quite tor- torquier. They're quirky little cars. Uh, they're lo- tons of fun to drive. Having the wheels all the way at the corners of the car, I mean, I think that's a... That's a BMW specialty. I mean, even the three series that they, 
that's how they just engineer the vehicles and it, it lends them to be to give a very good driving experience and let me specify we're talking about the newer bmw owned uh, mini coopers not the the old ones not the rally champs that are impossible to find in the u.s um, yeah. that i would have to wear as shoes because i don't fit in them now we're talking about the newer the more refined bmw owned mini coopers what are some of the drawbacks for them though so we have a build sheet for the R5X platform minis, I believe. I, I'm not a mini expert, but we do have some mini experts in the club. Some of the drawbacks, having instructed them and having driven a few of them on track, mostly the supercharged minis versus the, the later turbocharged ones, the short wheelbase makes them feel really, really twitchy and really unsettled versus a longer wheelbase car like a Mark IV or something like a, a Focus ST or, or a Fiesta or something like that, the Mini's just so short that you just never feel settled down. And actually, that's a common theme I've had with other BMWs. There's something about that extremity, that the suspension geometry, that they just never feel like they're planted, like you would get with, you know, let's say if you've ever driven an Audi Quattro where it feels like it's just digging itself into the earth. BMW engineering makes them overly complex and they're also prone to you know the seven plagues as we've seen through one of our members i mean they've caught on fire at the end of the day there's not a lot of space to work under the hood on a mini and being a front wheel drive it's already compact to maximize the people space but working on a mini is just exceptionally challenging and much like the beetles you you just kind of throw your hands up and go service position equal motor out right? Because that's the only way you have any space. But they are cheap. They do share some components that you can borrow, let's say, from a Miata, like wheels and tires and things like that. Just, just don't buy the Enkis because they break. <laughs> yes, we've experienced that as well. Operating a Mini, if you, as long as you take care of some of the issues, I've heard there's some seals that need to be taken care of, things like that that are on the build list that uh, Steve and Spencer have put together for us. Like every car, once it's all set up, you really don't have to worry about it much. It's just down to brakes and tires, and they'll pretty much last you an entire season. And the price point on the Mini is actually really good because they're getting older as well. And I have heard that the, the motor mounts are a failure point on those cars as well. I mean, we do those up front on the Volkswagens because we know the stock ones are just garbage. Again, right. back to those very soft bushings to try to make the cars drivable every day versus, you know, track use. So coming up next is the the famous BRZ and FRS, the Burrs and the Furs twins oh, man. Uh, that Subaru and Toyota got together and, and, and put out a few years ago. The love child. They would be amazing cars if they had about 100 more horsepower. Not even that. If they had about 50 more horsepower, I think they would be a blast to drive. They're, they're supposed to be well-balanced. They're rear-wheel drive, manual transmission. Uh, they're very forgiving. I guess that also lends to being a little bit lower horsepower. They're very popular. They're really popular with the kids. They're not very expensive. Brand new ones are low 30s and high 20s. Mm -hmm. um, they've got a huge aftermarket. Again, Toyota and Subaru uh, kids love them. Now, I will say that I've heard a rumor, the new one coming out, I don't know if it's 2021 or 2022, is going to have a turbo. That might be something to keep an eye on. I think they redesigned it. The look also is quite similar to the new Supra. So it's supposed to be like a baby Supra. They're great little cars if they're well sorted, uh, as we've seen at uh, certain race functions with one group, Emra, uh, they can be made super fast, allegedly in fairly stock trim. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the jury's still out on that one. But uh, 
But to your, to your point, right? So I think some of the downsides, the BRZ, you covered it. In base trim, the BRZ's engine is not going to excite you. If any of our listeners are, are of, a, of an older generation and ever they ever got an opportunity to drive a Porsche 944 in its base trim, uh, it's the same thing. It's one of those cars that they handle fantastic. They're quick and nimble, but they just don't light the world on fire. They don't make any good sounds. They just... It, it's just kind of boring and mundane, I hate to say. But you're right. The price point is good, especially for a car that you can just go buy off of the Toyota dealership or the Subaru dealership lot today for, you know, let's say sub $30,000 and go have fun and do nothing to it. Granted, I don't live far from IAG and I see plenty of those cars out there being modified. And I've gotten an opportunity to instruct in some modified BRZs and stock ones. And I will say the modified ones, especially the supercharged cars, are light years better. And that added, like you said, extra 50 horsepower makes all the difference in making that car exciting in the same way the 944 Turbo really turned it up to 11 compared to the base, you know, 924, 924S and 944s that they were built on. The other thing I will say, I have heard from some BRZ owners that when you really start to push them, they tend to be a little bit fragile. There's some parts in there that have to be upgraded. But if you're just starting out, very forgiving car, much like the E36, much like a 944. It's going to reward you. You're going to have a lot of fun, but you probably will crave more as you go along. And it's a Subaru motor underneath uh, in both the, the, the Subaru and the Toyota. And I believe that boxer motor traditionally have head gasket issues. I believe, and I'm not a Subaru expert. I know Sam knows more and there's a bunch of other Subaru guys in the club. I believe this is a different motor than the, somebody online will correct my, my acronym here. I think it's the EJ that's in like the WRXs and stuff. This was actually a new motor from Subaru. It has a Toyota valve train and Toyota ejection system on it. Hmm. So it is a, a, a cross platform between the two brands. But yes, at the end of the day, the car, you know, whether you buy it with a Scion badge, you buy it with Toyota badge as a GT86, or you buy a BRZ, they're all the same. So up next on the list, it looks like we jump off the deep end into a pile of bratwurst <laughs> and there's a Porsche 996 on this list. So we're like, wait a minute. I thought we were talking about starter cars, right? But the 996 actually makes the list because it is very much that. It is like the perfect starter Porsche if you don't want a front engine Porsche like a 944 or 968 or something like that. The 996 is really great value for the money and it wins out over the aging 944. But there are some concerns with the 996. And I know you've looked into this car extensively, Brad. So tell us about it. The uh, IMS bearing, the intermediate shaft bearing is a huge fail point. And I mean, the, not even just for the 996, for, uh, for the 911, but also for the, the Boxsters of the same year. If that goes, I mean, you're putting 20 grand into a new motor. People can buy these cars. Uh, once you do, if it hasn't been done already, make sure that that failure point is taken care of. I can't imagine because it's a Porsche, Porsche parts, aftermarket parts and stuff, even though they are there, they're going to be quite pricey. Just like with BMWs, you pay the M tax. With Mercedes, you're going to pay the AMG tax if you've got an AMG model. Porsches, you're going to pay the Porsche tax regardless of what Porsche model you have. If you've got a little bit of money to burn uh, and you're looking for something, there's tons of aftermarket support. There's the Porsche Club of America's a club dedicated to Porsches. Uh, you can get into their specific Porsche races. Huge uh, support system there. Those people know everything 
there is possibly to know about Porsches. Now, they tend to not like the 996 because of the looks. I don't know why. I think they're great looking cars. They say they've got the, the egg drop headlights. I don't see a problem with them. I would, I would own a 996 if I could afford it right now. And I think it was, it was also a old guard versus new school adopting water cooling for the first time. You yeah, know, a yeah. lot of those, the Porsche club racer guys, you know, they're dedicated air cooled cars, right? Oh, I got to have my two seven RS. I got to have my nine, you know, my three, six twin spark, you know, all those, those motors that they were classic, especially a lot of those guys are still running vintage, but now time has, has progressed and you're seeing nine, nine, six, nine, nine, seven 991s you know gt2s gt3s they're all water cooled 911s now but the thing is on the 996 and the reason it's a good starter car if you want a different experience a 911 is a completely different driving experience because it's you know it's like throwing a hammer it's a front wheel drive with five reverse gears right <laughs> and one forward but realistically it is bargain basement there was a period there you could get a 996, whether it had the IMS done or not, for sub 15K. I mean, all day long on like cars.com, you'd see, oh, 996, uh, $13,000. And I'm like, what? So if that's your cup of tea, you know, that little bit of Earl Grey there, <laughs> or maybe sauerkraut in this case, <laughs> uh, the, the, uh, the 996 is definitely the way to go. But again, do your due diligence. As Brad said, talk to some people about those cars first to figure out what's going on. So what's next, Brad? Next, we've got the Ford Mustang. Specifically, we're going to focus on the 2014 and up, the redesign. Independent rear suspension, you know, all that good stuff. They've got three motors, four motors, depending on if you go with the, the GT350R or like a GT500 or something. To me, there's really only one motor. It's it's the Coyote V8 or nothing at all. You can take the Turbo EcoBoost motor. They're great little motors. You can get a lot of power out of them but it sounds like a weed whacker going down the track. I mean, if you have a Mustang, it shouldn't sound like that. The V6 is another stout motor. I don't know if they're still offering it with the V6, but that was another good motor. Uh, I had 300 something horsepower uh, in a base car. It's pretty, pretty good. But for me, if you're going to own a Mustang, then you've got to have all of the Mustang, which is all eight cylinders. <laughs> <laughs> all the crowd control. <laughs> yep. yep yeah. <laughs> so having had the pleasure of, instructing and driving several of these cars i'm really infatuated with them they're actually really really good and it's for me it started almost before this car came out i got an opportunity to coach in some boss 302s the 2013s and the rumor has it though the car was completely redesigned i have my speculations that the german division of ford was involved because it's unlike anything else the suspension was derived from the 302 and the 302 at that time when i got in out of it for the first time on track i was like this car is fantastic out of the box. I could not believe how good the handling was. That carried over to the S550, which is that the current generation of Mustangs. And the, the engine choice is really up to you because as you've alluded to, the mods are there and we have proof through several members the four-cylinder is fast, especially with that Ford Power Pack, which is, you know, doesn't void your warranty. It's something they sold to boost the power, making almost 300 at the rear wheels. And the four-cylinder screams. It's a lot more reliable than something like the Focus RS, which has the same motor. We've seen nothing but problems with those cars, and that's why, obviously, they're not on this list. And I think it's because of the packaging, too. I mean, the, the, that short nose, everything's compact in the Focus RS. Um, there's, there's no room for it because the Mustang was designed for the V8 or designed to at least house a V8. There's so much more room in there. Air probably flows better. These are just my assumptions and, and conspiracy theories at this point. But 
that's why I th- that that's my personal belief as to why the the Mustangs are more reliable. And being an American car, like you said, has great aftermarket support, wheels, brakes, wings, you know, whatever bling, whatever you want to put on there. And that's great. But downside to the Mustang is it is a bit heavy, especially when you're comparing it to the Corvette, which I don't know why they try to compare themselves because it doesn't belong in that pony war, right? It's Camaro and Mustang. It's always been that way, but they try to reach and say, Oh, the Corvette. And it does, it can perform and it can get out there and beat up on some Corvettes, especially with the 5.0 and the GT350, but it is heavy. Do notice that when you drive it, the hood is kind of long. So you have to get used to the perspective of looking out over the front of the battleship. (laughs) But the thing is, the weight balance is really good. So the car is really predictable. It's got a lot more intelligence in it. The independent suspension is fantastic. I will say the handling on the four cylinder is better than the Coyote just because it weighs probably half as much as the V8 does, right? And I think the other big negative to having a Mustang track car is that you're never allowed to go to Cars and Coffee ever. Yeah, yeah, you you lose that right the, the second you sign on the dotted line. And we don't want to just focus on the Mustang here. As you brought up earlier, you alluded to the, the Pony War. There's also the Camaros and the, the Challengers. They're both in the same vein as the Mustang. I think the Mustang wins on track. Yeah, 100%. Um, I mean, if you read any road and track or, or car and driver, article about the comparison between the three and the Mustang is definitely the better choice for the track car. The Challenger is a better choice for the street. It's a nice place to be, especially the redesigned interior and the newer ones. I know the exterior of the car is the same, has been the same for what, 200 years now. It has not (laughs) changed at all. Uh, I think people used to pull ox carts with them. Yeah. But the car itself is it's, there's no need to change it. Why change something that, that works? Uh, they sell really well. They're they're really comfortable. They're great. I would call them great just touring cars. And the um, problem with the Camaro, which we're kind of avoiding talking about here, the problem with the Camaro is, and I don't want to offend Brett, who we'll have on in a later episode for sure. The problem with the Camaro is it's heavy, just like the Mustang is. But I think it's heavier even then. And when you compare the package and the price to get like a 1LE or a Z28 or a ZL1 or something like that, you just go, ah, I'm just going to go buy a Corvette, right? Because it's all the same power or like, but the Corvette is a better car. And then like, you know, why do I want to drive around in a Corvette that weighs as much as, you know, my wife's minivan, <laughs> right? So the but com- I, I can tell you why though, because I don't fit properly in a Corvette. I fit in one of the, some of the most fun I've ever had on track is riding shotgun in Brett's Camaro. I will give you that. I will give you that. And that's actually the down, one of the downsides we forgot to talk about in the BRZ. It is a small cabin. So for you, I don't think you'd be very comfortable in the BRZ, you know, after a half hour stint. Yeah, not with a helmet on. <laughs> for me, the Camaro, just going back to wrap that thought up, I always downvote that car because I have a hard time seeing out of it. And it's not because I'm short. It's just because I feel like it's a chop top. And the, the visibility, especially kind of over your shoulder and the blind spots, and it has those those big hips and stuff, it just... The, the belt line is a little too high in that right. car. And I understand that's just, this is the way cars are being designed nowadays. But in that car, especially, the belt line 
It's just, it's just too high. They, they, there's not enough window space. And you're right. That's one of the criticisms you ask anybody uh, that, that does tests and reviews of them. The, the first complaint is I can't see out of it. And that translates to the track for those listening at home. Visibility at the track is key. You need to be able to see where you're going. You need to be able to look across the A pillars and, and, and look at the apex, right? You need to be able to see behind you who's coming. That's a big drawback to the Lotus Elise like Andrew just picked up. You can't see out of those cars. I mean, I have a hard time in the Audi. with I have a TT. And it's the same thing with that really small back glass. It makes it very difficult to see sometimes. So you have to get really strategic. But we'll, we'll park that for now. We can talk about the Pony Wars at another time. Now we're going back to front wheel drive. Hey. And we're going to talk about the Hondas. Uh, I mean, Hondas, Acuras. I mean, we can lump in the, the Nissan Sentras and, and anything really uh, small, economical, front wheel drive, small motor. You do not need to make a lot of power to have fun at the track. You need something that's going to be nimble and that's going to be reliable where you're going to be able to find parts for it. And the, the Hondas, especially the, the, the 90s and early 2000s SIs, in addition to the Acura Integras and everything, are great options. Uh, mm-hmm. And also you can get the, the Prelude if you want to be a little funky, you want something a little bit different. We've got a couple members that are Honda fanatics and they've got the Preludes and, and stuff like that. The, the big um, bore, the big bore Honda. Yeah, the, the big bore Honda. <laughs> um, they're, they're great cars. They're reliable. I mean, the, you can run the, the heck out of them. You can probably get four or five hours uh, out of them at, at, at full tilt. Uh, wide open throttle and they just ask for more they they take a beating and they do not care they're very cheap to operate if anybody's ever seen fast and the furious which we hope our listeners have at least watched the first one they'll know that the aftermarket support for that is huge especially if you want spoon engines (laughs) and to rob banks you know yeah yeah yeah. (laughs) (laughs) but yeah they're, they're they're great cars they're they don't have the the luxurious factor of the mark fours really thin materials, uh, really thin metal and sheet metal and stuff like that. Um, they don't have the fit and finish of some of those other cars, but for a track car, who the hell cares? Right. And that's actually part of their beauty and part of the, the is the simplicity and the lightness, right? Uh, the, the, the Lotus mantra, add light, add lightness. But uh, the Hondas already start there. But the thing is, and, I, and I've had the pleasure of, of running many Hondas and we have dynoed several of them and things like that. The Honda is an interesting car because, as you said, it will take a beating. And it really reminds me of the older Italian cars, you know, those spaghetti-powered motors that live their lives at 9,000 RPM. And they're not happy if they're not there. The Hondas are very similar. They don't, they're not known for making powerful engines, you know, and let's take the NSXs and, and all those, those things off the table. Let's just talk about the four cylinders, right? Anywhere from the 1500s to the, to the two liters, uh, you know, discounting the bigger motors. But you look at the numbers and it's like 900 horsepower and 43 foot pounds of torque. And torque is what you feel. And that's usually the drawback, the negative that people give about a Honda is it just doesn't feel like it's moving. But when in reality, you're looking at your exit speeds and because you can keep it wound up, because you can stay in the power band, as long as you're above VTEC, you can actually go really fast. And the cars are deceptively quick. I will say, dynoing it, uh, we dynoed Matthew's Civic SI, he's got a 99, and off VTEC, until VTEC kicked in, it made the same power, identical to a Spec Miata 1.6 liter, right? So dollar for dollar, the B16 and a 1.6 Miata made the same power. When VTEC kicked in, all of a sudden, the torque curve just stayed the same, and the horsepower nearly doubled. 
and it sounds like a completely different engine. It's something to get used to. Those are the type of cars you really have to scruff them. You have to drive them really hard. It all gets kind of obfuscated by those torque numbers and all that kind of stuff, but it doesn't mean you're not going to have fun. But again, if you're looking for cheap, easy, big parts, uh, aftermarket support, the Honda is a good choice. It's a good mm -hmm. recommendation. All right, one of your personal favorites, Corvette. <laughs> but with big asterisks here, right? It's kind of like the Volkswagens. There's one generation that's really a great starter car, and that's the C5. The C5 being the correct my correct my years on those cars. It's in the early 2000s, much like 97 to 2004. There you go. Okay, so a lot of these cars you're starting to realize they're overlapping here. The E46s, the Corvettes, the Porsches we're talking about, even the VWs, they're all in a similar age range. They're getting up there 15, 17, almost 20 years old. They, they're really affordable. They were good cars then. Cars today are very different. But the C5 specifically, again, very different than the cars that came before it but also different than the cars that came after. The C6 was a complete redesign and everything's based on that. The C4 carried over from the older generation, like the C3s and stuff like that. So to me, the five felt like a different chassis. And I, I've been very fortunate to spend time uh, with the National Corvette uh, Museum organization and the Corvette Club and have ridden in various different generations of Corvette on track. And I always feel the most comfortable in the C5. The C4 is, is kind of rides like a truck. The C6 is super twitchy. The C7, you feel like you're in a jet fighter. It's a completely different experience. The C5 is a driver's car. It's got big horsepower, you know, for that time period, 400 horsepower and 400 torques. And you don't need to do any mods to it because even now they're talking about spec Corvette racing, which is all based on the C5. So I look at it as big motor, big fun. To clarify, the Z06 yeah. is the one with the 400 horsepower and gobs of torque. If you get the, the lower model, uh, I say lower model, but like a base C5 uh, with the target top, they're around 345 horsepower is what they were advertised with, the crank. And then for the Z06, you want 2002 to 2004 for the 405 horsepower. The first Z06, 2001, had 385 horsepower. But you've always told me with those American motors, throw a cam in there and an exhaust, and all of a sudden you got 100 horsepower. Yeah, with the LS motors, they're very easy to mod. The car is not very heavy. I mean, so it's it would not be hard. You don't even really need all that power. The power it comes with is is great. They're I think they're I think they're great cars. They're a little more roomy than the newer vets. It's still 90s Chevrolet sitting in one, so it's not a great place to be. Until you're rocketing down, you know, the back street of VIR, passing Volkswagens and Hondas and yeah, everything and else on this list. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. exactly. But it's, to get to the point of cost of ownership, they are a bit pricey to maintain. The, the rear tires are 345s. Um, they've got a staggered setup. So buying wheels for them, unless you get the same all around, you've got to keep track of that. So the expenses can start to add up for those cars, just maintenance and everything like that. Exactly. And I think you're going to start to see with this spec Miata, or spec Miata <laughs> with this spec Corvette racing that's coming out, you're going to see a lot of really interestingly, similarly rather, prepared Corvettes. And when people get out of the series after a year or two or three, because that's usually kind of the length of a lot of those series, unless it's spec Miata racing or spec E36, which now is, is actually kind of sunsetting as well. You're going to be able to pick up a spec Corvette for not a lot of money. And those are going to be well-prepared cars with log books sorted. You want to go out and have fun. 
again, going back to what Sam said when we quoted him, build versus buy, buy. Next is the answer for 99.9% of people out there. All of this talk that we've been talking for what, 45 minutes now? It's all, <laughs> it's all been for naught because the answer has been right there in front of us the whole time. Oh, man. The Mazda Miata. They have spec series and everything. Uh, they, they, they're cheap. I mean, you can get them, um, you can get the NAs for you know, a bag of chips you know, or something like that. <laughs> they're very well-balanced cars. They're very forgiving because they're low horsepower. They don't, well, we've got a friend that loops it all the time, but that may be his driving style versus, but they're, they're, they're great cars, tons of support. Like because there's a racing series, uh, they, I mean, you can get tires for them for 50 bucks, racing slicks. If your goal is to go racing, it's the best car. The best thing about the Miata is being on track with other Miatas though. When you're, if you're out on track in the Miata and you're at a DE event, for example, where the, everybody's out there driving whatever they brought, you're going to be given a lot of point buys. I, I'm not going to lie. But if you're out there doing spec racing, you know, in the, the racing series, uh, then you're out there with everybody else. You're all even playing field. They're a ton of fun. I've never been in one of the spec Miata races, but I've watched enough of them. And why, why, why is that, Brad? Is there a reason why? Uh, uh, no, I, I don't know. I, I just haven't gotten into it. I, I can't, I can't, <laughs> I can't say why. <laughs> all right, listeners. He's six foot four. <laughs> We're just going to leave it there. We're going to leave it to your imagination. <laughs> I fit in some of the Miatas. I do not fit in the, the originals. The NA and the NB, I, I don't really fit. But why don't we talk about some of the other drawbacks other than the size? Yeah, so I've been really fortunate. I've driven all four generations of the Miata. I will say this. The early cars do not impress, right? Especially the 1.6s. If you're looking at a spec car fully prepared with all the goodies and bells and whistles, as long as it's not a cheater motor, you're looking at somewhere between 100 and 104 wheel horsepower. That is nothing to write home about. And that's 104 people, not 140. <laughs> yeah, 104. The other thing is the Miatas are, are now 30 years old, right? They came out in 1990, probably in Japan, actually a little bit earlier than that, probably 89. But still, they're getting up there. They're getting a little long in the tooth. So don't expect big numbers, but it's a car actually modeled after the Lotus Elan, if you really go back in time. And so it has that simplicity. It has that lightness and that 104 horsepower, wheel horsepower, you'd be amazed what you can do with that because it really forces you to grow as a driver. And so you end up driving that Miata at the absolute limit. I mean, a lot of guys run nine tenths, 10 tenths. I run at 11. But in you're in a Miata, all of a sudden you're cranking up to 13 because you have to overdrive it in some cases to really squeeze out every drip of blood out of that turnip. That being said, when you graduate from a Miata to something else, you just graduated jet fighter school because you get in any other car and you're going to be fast. But you have to have the patience. You can't expect it to be fast right away because it isn't. It's a momentum car. Now, every car has momentum. I can hear people buzzing in my ear. But it's one of those things where it's all about carrying speed and maximizing your exit speed on every corner. If I had to pick a Miata for myself, I really like the NC, which is the third generation Miatas. Those came out 2005 to 2013. There's actually an NC1 and an NC2. They did a, a split in there. It's bigger. It's more comfortable. It also has a two liter 16 valve instead of the, you know, you know, the smaller motors from the early days. It's a much more rewarding car because it makes 140 horsepower ish 
I'm going to add that in there. But <laughs> the NDs for me, the, the current ones are too small because they've gone back to making them the size of the NA and Bs. But of the new generation, I'd have to pick the Fiat 124 just because it, I can get it with a turbo and I can chip it and make double the horsepower immediately. It is a different power plant. It's not a Mazda power plant. It's a Fiat Abarth multi-air uh, engine from the 500 Abarth. So that's nice. I also like the fact that the, the 124 is bigger, but I still, I call it a Fiat, so it still lives in that Miata category. But you're gonna spend a lot more for a new Miata versus go on racingjunk.com, type in the word Miata, and there's probably a hundred of them to choose from right now that you can get into that are fully sorted and fully prepared. That's another car I would argue, if you're if you're really destined on going racing, just buy one already done. It's not worth building one from scratch. But if you're looking at doing some DEs, driving it on the street, you know, to throw the top down and have a good time, or do some autocross, you know, some, some spirited driving, the Miata is the all around probably best package on the list. So with that being said, not, you know, not to wax poetic about the Miata that much more because the people that know, know, and the people that don't are going to buy one soon. So are there any honorable mentions on this list, Brad? There are. I don't know why there are because all these cars that I'm looking at here are turds, but there, there are some honorable mentions out there. Uh, I mean, we briefly mentioned the Porsche 944. Okay, sell me, sell me one. Sell me why. Okay, well, so the 944 was one of these weird cross-pollination projects where there's rumors, you know, some, some Porsche purists have, are now arguing that the 944 was always supposed to be a Porsche. And if you're in the VW VAG family, then you go, no, it was designed by VW, much like the 914, and Porsche stole it from us and said, no, we're going to slap our badge on it and go to town. There's so many crossover parts between like a Mark One Rabbit and, uh, and, an, and an Audi truck and like in the 944, it's not even funny, right? Because the, the part numbers, it's like, oh, that's a door handle off a rabbit, you know, stuff like that. It makes it cheap, which is good because if you know how to cross match the parts, you don't have to pay the Porsche tax because you can buy the equivalent Volkswagen part, bolt it right up and you're done. Also, if you're talking about it being cheap, you're not talking about the turbo one then. Correct. Correct. You're talking about the NAs. Correct. Yeah. Now we already said we're comparing it to the BRZ, right? So non-turbo, normally aspirated, those motors run forever. They're relatively bulletproof. There's a couple of years there, two five, two seven. There's a rumored three liter in there. I, I, I would lean that towards the 968. Don't 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 quote me on any of this stuff. There is a 16 valve version in a normally aspirated car, all that kind of stuff. But the Porsche 944 was one of at the time, Porsche's highest selling cars because it was more affordable than the 911. It was more aerodynamic than the 911, you know, stuff like that. And people could just get into it. It was the everyman Porsche, much like the Ferrari 308 was the everyman's Ferrari. That's why there's so many of those cars, despite the popularity from Magnum PI and, and all that kind of stuff. So tell me why you don't like it. What's in the con column here? I, I, I personally don't like the turbos, I guess, because I've heard well, one, they're expensive. They're expensive to get into, expensive. They're hard to find. They aren't very reliable. And this is all purely hearsay. I mean, I've mm -hmm. got zero experience with them. Personally, I prefer the the lines and the look of the 924. Mm. But either a 944 NA or a 924, the first thing I would do to it, other than paint it guards red, is to do a motor swap and put a 180 in it. <laughs> <laughs> or LS, right? Or, like no, no, I'm, I'm going to stick with the, the Volkswagen. I'm going to stick with the 180 or maybe a two liter if I want to get a little saucy with it. Mm -hmm. uh, or even a VR6. You put any of those motors it's in done. it. Yeah. it I, I'm sure it has. I don't know. I just, 
I don't know. I just, I mean, I just, I'm me, just not a fan. For me, I mean, the 944 is an icon, right? I mean, they came out when I was a kid. It's it's a car, you know, you just see them everywhere. I mean, you don't see them as much anymore, but it's an icon, but it really hasn't aged well, right? I think owning and operating a 944, unless you're really willing to work on it yourself, and we have a Porsche master mechanic uh, in our group who's told us horror stories about these cars. They do have head gasket issues, like you, you mentioned, because of the way the engine's constructed and all this kind of stuff. You need to be able to turn wrenches on those cars because there are still uh, mechanics out there paying off their mortgages on 944s because <laughs> they've been doing that since the 80s. Um, so it's really important you get, you know, kind of get your knuckles dirty and, and work on those your, yourself. I will, again, it's another car building from a base. 944 is an expensive endeavor, right? Getting all those high quality parts, taking care of all the mistakes, taking, you know, doing 30 years of evolution. Let somebody, like, let somebody else's wallet have taken care of that. Again, go to Racing Junk, find one that's already built. Here's one we often forget. And actually, one of our members just picked one of these up. It's the Nissan 350Z, the first generation, 2003 to whatever year. And, and don't forget its brother, the, the, the G35 and the G37. That is correct. I like the Z. It is 15 plus years old now. The prices have come way down on these cars. The VQ motor, despite being a Renault engine that comes out of a like run-of-the-mill sedan, it's actually a very strong motor. Renault is pretty well known for building very good high performance engines in formula one and rally and, and things like that. So I'm not saying that the street cars are as good, but the VQ is proven to be a strong motor, much like the two JZ, much like the one, eight turbo VR six and stuff like that, where you can mod them and they will take a beating and just keep going. The handling on the three fifty Z cause I've had the pleasure of, of instructing in a few of these cars. They're super neutral, very forgiving. And I've run in some that are modified and some that are almost bone stock. And they're just, I couldn't believe how good they were and how rewarding the driving experience was. I kind of, I always had this stigma in my head of like, oh my God, it's like a 300 ZX from, you know, just after the, the early Z cars had gone away. The first time I got in a, in a new Z, I was like, man, this is really cool. But it's often a car that is just, again, overlooked, is forgotten. And I would put it right up there with the proper mods. is just as good as like an E46. So what do you think, Brad? Uh, I don't fit. So it's not <laughs> on my list. But that's why I mentioned the, the, the G35 and G37s, because I think they're, they're nice places to be. They're nice cars. They're bigger, uh, obviously, because uh, it's got the Infinity. That's more their, their street touring car. Uh, and I, I, it's pretty much the same car underneath. I'm sure there are some minor differences, but basically they're the same car. It's harder to find one in a manual, but they are out there. Uh, the 350Z, if I fit better, I, I'd be more sold on it but because i don't and the same with the 944 i just i don't think i fit properly in them uh, and it's just a problem that i have uh, we'll talk about it at a later episode but it's just it's very hard to find vehicles that are fun to drive that i actually fit in <laughs> so i i think you'll agree with me though you can pick a vq out of all the cars going around track it has a very distinct sound to it not a bad sound you put an exhaust on a z you're, it's gonna it's gonna be pleasure to your ears uh, if you're into slightly louder cars but i think the drawback for the z is because there aren't very many of them as de cars there are lots of drift z cars and and z cars built for other disciplines drag racing etc 
you're going to be a bit of a pioneer when it comes to road racing. So it means the aftermarket scene and the parts, and I'm going through this with Porsche Al right now, who we're going to have on the show at a later date, where he's like, so what am I targeting? What should I be looking for? I'm having, I'm, I'm kind of reaching here to find these things that for you guys with BMWs and, and, and VWs and, and minis and all this stuff, you guys can get those parts tomorrow. And I'm like, yeah. So he's going to have to dig in, do a little homework, but he's starting to chip away at it. It's becoming easier. So he's a bit of a pioneer, especially for us to say, Hey, this is how you build a Z card. And he's going to do a write up on that. If you're looking to buy one, be careful of the, what I call the showy cars or the stance bro cars, because they've got all the wrong mods. You're going to spend a lot of money to undo stuff, bring the camber back, raise the car up, you know, get rid of the tin, you know, all these kind of things that are completely unnecessary at the track, by the way, airbags, not a good suspension plan for road racing. I've also heard rumors and the Zs are prone to have transmission problems. There is an upgraded transmission for those. And I know Matthew always tells me the joke is that the transes are so bad in the Z cars that Nissan was just giving new ones and telling people to, to throw the old ones away. They weren't even doing core charge. That being said, you know, it's 15 years later. So they've made modifications. There's some updates to those, uh, those cars to take care of the drivetrain issues. Do your research, you know, dive into that kind of stuff before going whole hog on a 350Z. So what's left? Well, we've already touched on it a little bit earlier, but the final recommendation we have is basically anything front wheel drive, Econobox, sedan. Our example would be a Neon. I mean, there was an entire racing series dedicated to the Neon. Uh, it's cheap, just like the Hondas and the Volkswagens. Uh, they're you know, really inexpensive. They got huge aftermarket support, especially because there was a racing series for them. They've got decent power. They're a little torquier than the, the Hondas. Uh, they're, they're fun. They're fun little cars. Uh, I, I don't think there's racing series for them anymore. Um, but if you go on racing junk, I'm sure you can find a ton of those cars out there, especially because there's no racing series. I mean, we're talking about the original, the, the first gen uh, Neons. There's also the second gen Neons, which the SRT4, it's still a neon, even though it's SRT4, it is still a neon. Um, but, <laughs> That's but, the big downside. But those cars are, are turbo cars, uh, turbo four cylinders. They, they came out of the box with 300 horsepower, I think, 200 something on horsepower. Very easily moddable. You can get big power out of those cars. More power means more responsibility and more things start to break. Um, so be mindful of that. And then the downside is it's a neon. <laughs> so and to your point right i've time trialed for a couple seasons against uh through with scca and every time i went there was always a neon in the group and one of the guys i was targeting in the, in the higher classes was actually running a world challenge neon and i was really surprised how much effort it took to chase that car down especially the, the srt4 i mean they're making well i think we were limited to like 320 or 330 wheel horsepower and Getting those kind of numbers out of an, an SRT4 Neon was like, okay, sure. Let me just let me just turn the dial and we're ready to go. That being said, it's not a bad handling car. It's another car you can dial in with, you know, lift throttle oversteer, just like the Volkswagens and stuff like that. But yeah, to your point, I mean, there's a lot of jokes about the Neon. And again, it's why it's on our honorable mention list because it's often overlooked. It's a 
cheap car to get into, a cheap car to maintain. There is some sharing there with, it's a DSM platform or engine platform. So you've got some of that Mitsubishi crossover, especially in the early cars. If you can get a 16 valve sport, that's a, that's an Eclipse motor. So it's a lot better than the run of the mill base Chrysler engine that was, that was put in those cars. The, the SRT4 actually is overbuilt. The block is the same as a mini. If I remember correctly, somebody told me that, which is actually a Peugeot 206 or something like that. So it's a European block and then everybody puts their head on it and the turbo of choice and, and all that kind of stuff. But Again, it's not a car to kind of just turn your nose at if you're looking for a starter car to get in on, on track use. In order to widen your net, we recommend a bunch of different websites if you want to look for some of the cars that we've already talked about, or if you just want to see what else is out there. I mean, there's tons of people racing cars, uh, and then when they race them, they get bored with them, as you know we all do, uh, and then they sell them. Uh, so Racing Junk is a great place to look. Um, there's also uh, Bring a Trailer. Uh, I think Bring a Trailer has a lot more of the, I guess, collector cars. So, so that, Queens. Yeah, the, the prices are going to be all over the map on that site. Um, you can go either way, um, but based on some of our member experiences, you can often bring unforeseen problems with some of these cars. Uh, as, as you said, the, these Garage Queens, uh, they may not be set up properly for, for driving. Uh, they're just weekend warriors, I guess. Mm-hmm. And finally, I think, you know, one of my go-tos is always cars.com. I mean, I'm not here to plug or advertise any one of these sites, but these are the tools you have at your disposal to find an entry level, you know, uh, track car, autocross car, you know, B-road bomber. I'm with you though. <laughs> I go back and forth, right? I have fantasies. I'm going to build one. I'm going to buy one. It all depends on the mood. But I think these three websites you recommended are, are really, really strong in that category. And remember your mileage may vary. So it's really, it's really going to be different for everybody and i will throw something out there you know if you look hard enough on bring a trailer you might be able to pick up a panos esperante full-on tt1 race car so <laughs> for not a lot of money <laughs> and uh, park it in your garage and never work on it but that's an episode for another day so in full disclosure i just have to add this as we wrap up our high-level assessment of all the cars on this list is really based on our members and our owner and owner experiences. We urge you to do your own research and fact-check everything before committing to any one of these vehicles. GTM and Brad and I specifically, we're not responsible for your satisfaction, your happiness, or your overall track performance, you know, winning trophies, all that kind of stuff. That's, that's up to you with whatever vehicle you choose. So make sure to visit, you know, vehicle-specific online forums and or owners clubs for highly detailed first-hand information on any vehicle you might be interested in. So with that, peace. <laughs> peace. So there you have it. He broke it. I fixed it. Until next time, always remember, if you can take it apart without breaking it, you can surely fix it. From all of us at GTM, Merry Motoring. If you like what you heard and want to learn more about GTM, be sure to check us out at www.gtmotorsports.org. You can also find us on Instagram at Grand Touring Motorsports. Also, if you want to get involved or have suggestions for future shows, you can call or text us at 202-630-1770 or send us an email at crewchief at gtmotorsports.org. We'd love to hear from you. Hey listeners, Crew Chief Eric here. Do you like what you've seen, heard, and read? 
from GTM? Great, so do we, and we have a lot of fun doing it. But please remember, we're fueled by volunteers and remain a no annual fee organization, but we still need help to keep the momentum going so that we can continue to record, write, edit, and broadcast all of your favorite content. So be sure to visit www.patreon.com forward slash GT Motorsports or visit our website and click in the top right corner on the support and donate to learn how you can help.